Luke 19 is the passage. And uh, there's a a kid song. If you grew up in church as a little kid, you may have been taught this one. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. And a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. My children learned that from a sing-along video when they were quite young. And and they enjoyed it when they were little. It's kind of catchy. It doesn't really do the passage a whole lot of justice or Zacchaeus a whole lot of justice. There's something I hope you'll see as we look at it today, something like rich and, and far more beautiful than you might initially pick up uh, when you were reading it. Luke 19, the story takes place in the city of Jericho. It is one of Jesus' last stops on his journey to Jerusalem, where he will you know, give up his life on the cross. He has about 10 days left to live. So that's the timeline, 10 days left. And I don't know if you knew, knew this about, but uh, like the Greek name for Jesus is Jesus. And then when you get translated, it's Jesus in English. But the Hebrew name is actually Joshua. It's kind of complicated and how the name floats through the different languages. One of the reasons why it's Jesus in Greek is because he, uh, Greek doesn't have a sh sound to it, so they substitute an s Another reason there's a, a change is because they put a, an S at the end of his name in Greek in order to masculinize um, the name. But his name is Joshua. Do you hear any echoes here? Because there was another Joshua who came to the city of Jericho many years before. Um, and what was his mission? Well, it was to completely destroy the city. You know, the, the walls of Jericho come falling down and there's you know death and destruction. Here is a second occurrence of Joshua coming to Jericho. And this time, it's totally different. Like this time, his mission is to save what you would probably describe as the, the most unlikely man in the city of Jericho, to save him. And it ends up being this tremendous blessing to the poor that live in the city. Luke 19, verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of the sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and he said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay it back four times, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Um, help us, Father, to see the heart of Christ in this passage, and then please do a, an amazing work and give us that same kind of heart. We do love you. I mean, it's your breath in our lungs that we're drawing upon right now. We love you. We love your words. Uh, we love your grace and pray that you would minister it. You would give it to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you agree this story has an almost whimsical quality to it? 
It's the story of a short, balding man, or so I imagine, who looks a lot like Danny DeVito, or so I imagine, you know, dressed in a toga with an expensive flowing robe on because he's very wealthy, and he decides, of all things, to climb a tree. But it's not just any tree that he climbs. I mean, have, have you ever wondered, what is a sycamore tree doing in the desert of Israel? I, there's a number of things in the story that have perplexed me uh, through the years, and that was one of them. Like, where do sycamore trees grow? I mean, you think normally the, in the northeastern part of the United States, like upstate New York or, or Pennsylvania, or maybe the central part of the United States, Michigan. Well, it turns out that sycamore comes, it's a compound word. It comes from two words, sica, which means fig, and moros, which means mulberry. So he literally climbs up a mulberry fig tree, the leaves of which are very similar in shape to a mulberry tree, and the, the fruit of which is very similar to a fig. And here's a picture of a mulberry uh, fig tree. It's a species of tree that is native to Africa and to the Middle East, with very broad, low, expansive branches, which I think you can notice it, it's perfect for climbing, right? Uh, a short guy could get <laughs> to a branch like that because they're very low to, to the ground. Um, now Luke, he leaves out many details. He doesn't tell us, for instance, why Zacchaeus is so eager to see Jesus of Nazareth. Um, we can guess, like most likely, he knew of Jesus by reputation. Jesus was a prophet, a preacher, a healer, a, a, a great teacher. Um, a big celebrity is coming to town when Jesus arrives. That is, would be, um, you know, the most reasonable uh, answer. But I wonder, I wonder if there isn't something different going on. Jesus is the only Jewish rabbi in recorded human history who selected as one of his students or disciples a tax collector to, to, to serve in that role. Like the, read all through human history. There's never, this has never happened before. When Jesus selects Matthew, who is a tax collector, it's possible that Zacchaeus, uh, he may have even worked with Matthew at some point in time because it wasn't as though it was a very large country. Um, when he hears that this is a rabbi who selects tax collectors for his disciples, he's like, I gotta see that. Because that's crazy. Something is going on. Luke tells us that Zacchaeus was short. And here's another question which has perplexed me. Why doesn't a short man just kind of like run ahead and, and elbow his way through the crowd and stand at the front of the crowd so that people behind them can see over his head? But he's, he gets an unobstructed view in the front of the crowd as Jesus is coming you know, down the road. Like, have you ever thought of that before? And I think the answer is in verse 2. He's a chief tax collector, which means not, he's, he's an arc, the word is arche. He's like the, the top of the top of the Ponzi scheme, which would be the tax authority scheme in the city of Jericho, which means he's one of the wealthiest men in the city and he's certainly the most hated. Um, if you can imagine that Canada decided to take over the United States and, and all of a sudden, um, you know, the Canadians are over the city of Phoenix. Uh, and there's a festival going on, you, like a Canadian tax collector is probably not going to feel very comfortable making his way through a crowd of Americans in a festive event in the city. And, and he is a short man, like massively short. Did you have any idea that archaeologists have unearthed, you know, bodies from the first century 
the, the, the normal size of a first century Jewish man was five feet, one inch tall, and they would have weighed 110 pounds. I mean, these are not what we would consider tall human beings. So if Zacchaeus is shorter than that, like, he's a shrimp. <laughs> he is, he's exceptionally short. And with that information, I hope you can now appreciate what's going on, like the cultural significance of what's happening. As Americans, you know, freedom and individual rights and autonomy, those are the things that we prize the most. The ability to kind of live life on our terms, free to live it however we think we need to live it. Like freedom, that's what we value the most. But in traditional cultures, that doesn't matter all that much. What matters above all else in a traditional Eastern culture is maintaining your honor. It is your dignity. It is, it is to be esteemed in the eyes of other people. Um, the greatest horror in their culture was being put to shame. And like, what self-respecting man, like rich man, climbs a tree in that day? Like, getting up in a tree is only going to accentuate the fact that you're really, really tiny. <laughs> I mean, don't you think Zacchaeus knew that he was going to look like a fool up in that tree? I'm struck that this action ends up drawing attention to him in the worst possible light. Like everybody sees him up there and says like, like, I despise you. And like, what a twerp. Like, I don't know. When we read the story, we might think, oh, this is a cute moment. <laughs> but I think we should be embarrassed for him because um, he was undoubtedly um, the, the subject of all kinds of ridicule. And so why did he do it? He did it simply because he was that eager to see Jesus. I mean, eager doesn't even really do it justice, does it? It's not that he, he's, he's desperate. The man is that desperate to see Jesus. I mean, I don't know, probably all of us when we were teenagers had a crush on somebody. Um, there was that, you know, love of our lives. And if you look back and maybe you asked her to the prom and you did it in the most cringy way possible, or you, you go, you just look back and maybe even there's an old love letter that you wrote. And when you go back and you look and you see, like, how in the world did I, did I ever think that that was a good idea? I can't be- believe I did that. Um, but the reason you did it is because in that moment it didn't matter. And the only reason someone is going to knowingly open themselves to the worst kind of public ridicule is because at that moment, it doesn't matter. It doesn't, it doesn't matter when you are starving for God. You know, on one level, I pity him. And on another level, I'm extremely jealous of him. Because what, what would it be like for you and me to feel that level of need? Like to need to see God that much? Like, like a hunger and a thirst that's so palpable inside it. What would it be to have that kind, that kind of need, that kind of desire? Like, I mean, so often the way that we relate to Jesus is like, he's just an idea. He's, he's not this person that I am, who I am just dying, absolutely dying to see, to connect with, to know, to experience, to love, to be loved by. Well, the next event in the story is a command that comes in verse 5. Jesus looks up. He sees him in the tree. Zacchaeus, come down right now because I'm coming to, uh, I must stay at your house today. Imagine um, at the end of worship, you're talking to somebody you've never met before. They're maybe sitting beside you or sitting a row ahead of you. 
Um, what a rude surprise it would be if at the end of the conversation they said, how about this? Why don't we go over to your house and eat dinner tonight? You can cook me dinner and we'll relax and talk. Like that would feel very awkward, wouldn't it? I understand inviting someone to go to your own house or inviting them to go out to eat, but, but to invite yourself to the other person's house. And here is one of the, the subtle beauties of the passage. Did you realize that Zacchaeus could not invite Jesus for dinner? Zacchaeus couldn't invite Zacchaeus to, Zacchaeus could not invite any rabbi or any Jewish leader or anyone to his home because he was a tax collector and his home was unclean. Nobody in that city would dare come over to his place because he wasn't, he was an untouchable. He was vermin. It was off limits to anybody that would consider themselves a respectable citizen. And what I think is so great about this passage, when Jesus says, get out of the tree, I'm coming to your house. It was like the ultimate act of honor. He was bestowing on him this, this surprising, beautiful honor. Like there's nothing Jesus could have possibly done to have treated Zacchaeus, who has experienced great shame standing up there, with more honor than saying, I want to spend the rest of the day at your house. I want to share a meal with you. And all of the shame that he had experienced, do you realize it's immediately reversed? It's turned on its head. Um, when the celebrity says, Joshua, uh, the celebrity Joshua says, we're coming to eat at your place. If you're here this afternoon and, and you're not a committed follower of Jesus or you're, you're still kind of in process, I mean, I always say thank you for coming. It's a, it's a miracle that you came. You may have questions about the Christian God. Like, what is this God like? Or this Jesus character who... You've heard the name many times, and there are lots of different conceptions of Jesus, but you're thinking, well, what is, what is he like? As you read the story of Jesus in the Gospels, which are four narrative accounts of his life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, there's a pattern that you will observe if you read it consistently. It's this pattern. Over and over again, you will find that the more despised somebody is, the more sinful somebody is, the more outcast somebody is, the more likely Jesus is to move towards them and ask them to do something for him. It's kind of funny because you would think Jesus is always going to be the one who says, I've got something for you, but that's not actually how it works. And there's a classic example of this in John chapter 4. Jesus meets a woman who is a Samaritan, absolute cultural opposite, a woman who has been divorced by five men, because women didn't initiate divorce in that day. There have been five men that have been married to her, and they said, we don't want to be married with you, to you anymore. Um, massive shame. Like, this is a woman who has gone to a well to draw water at noontime, which is not the time that you normally go to draw water. That the ladies of the village would go in the morning, but she's gone by herself because she's got this big old red scarlet, you know, letter on her breast. And the man that she's living with right now doesn't love her enough to, to make her his wife. And what does Jesus do in that moment? He says, will you give me a drink? <laughs> yeah, over and over again, the more despised someone is, the more outcast someone is, the more likely Jesus is allow them, is, is to allow them to do something for him. And um, what does that teach you? Like maybe it means that his followers shouldn't always be going out in a position of strength, but in a position of weakness. 
You know, rather than saying, here's what I'm going to do for you. Here's what I can give to you. I want to, you know, what about like sometimes saying, could you give me this? Because I'm needy. I'm weak. And see what happens in that conversation. Well, verse 8, Zacchaeus, in response to all this, makes two remarkable promises. He first promises to give away 50% of his assets to the poor. Here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor. Um, if you search the Bible, you will discover that there is no such commandment in the Bible. There's nowhere in the Bible where it says you need to give half of your, of your wealth um, to the poor. You know, obviously, he's reading the moment, um, trying to find creative, generous ways to respond to the grace that he has been shown. He's not reading the Bible as a rule book. I'm like, all right, what's the percentage I'm supposed to give? Like, he's just exploding in the moment, creatively responding to Jesus, which that's beautiful. I'll give you one story of this. When we were up in Idaho, a friend of ours invited us to go on uh, a journey of generosity. It was basically a two-day little mini workshop um, that was hosted in somebody's cabin in, in the northern part of Idaho, where you were, we went and we studied some scriptures on generosity and we heard stories that were truly deeply inspiring. And the whole point of the group, it's called a generous giving. You may be familiar with them. Um, you, I know you're familiar with them, but their goal is to basically just to increase the generosity of God's people on earth. And so you would watch a video, like a 20 minute little video, and it would be the story of this single mom who um, was just kind of, her life was coming apart and she was destitute. But there was a Christian neighbor who said, you know what? Um, God just has led me to, to buy your house for you. <laughs> that, that type of thing. And it's just deeply inspiring. Another one was a, a nurse who's making a six-figure salary. She said, I woke up one day and I just realized I didn't, I didn't need $100,000 to live on. Like I could comfortably live on like way, way less. And, and so I decided to. And I, and I, gave, it, I gave the rest away. Well, the third story was a story that was very close to us. There was a couple in our church. He was a realtor. She was a pharmaceutical rep. Late 30s with two little children. And one of the guys on his realtor team ended up having a terrible kidney disease. And he was going to die if he didn't get a kidney transplant. It was one of those situations where I don't know if his blood type was unique or the, the kidney itself was unique, but... But this guy's wife, they, they were, had been in our church. She just started thinking and praying. And she really felt as though God was telling her, like, you need to be tested to see if you have the right, the right match. And so she did. And it's extremely rare, extremely rare. She was tested and it was. And, and she said, you know what? I don't need two kidneys. <laughs> I can live with one. And she donated it to this guy and it saved his life. And, you know, if you read the Bible as a rule book, you're, you're never going to read the, the law that says you'll give one kidney away. <laughs> but if you think of Jesus as this real, live, wonderful, gracious person, then I think you will find yourself exploding in fresh, creative ways um, in generosity. And, and this was a massive gift, okay? If we assume that there were 5,000 people living in the city of Jericho at that time, and the most wealthy man in the city decided that he was going to give away 50% of his assets to the poor. Like, Elon Musk, if he gave away 50% of his assets 
to the city of Austin. Would that make a difference? Probably. Uh, (laughs) If this guy gives away 50% of his assets, can you imagine what a difference that had to have made in the city? And And how much it honored the name of Jesus in that city. Like, talk about destroying the city with the first Joshua. I mean, this is like a rebuilding of the city, rebuilding the poor. The second promise he makes in verse 8 is, uh, he says, well, I'll give you a backstory. According to the Torah, it says, if you have unintentionally taken something which belonged to your neighbor, and then you realize what you have done, you're required to pay it back plus 20% in restitution. So if you, let's say you borrowed a neighbor's axe and you accidentally lost it. Well, you need to pay them back the cost of the axe plus 20%. Maybe you accidentally overcharged somebody something. Well, you, you'd pay it back at 120%. Zacchaeus, he says, if I have cheated anybody of anything, like 120%? No, no, no. <laughs> I will pay it back four times. I will pay back 400%. And Jesus in the next verse doesn't say, no, no, that was in the past. That's forgiven. He says, okay, well, this is a true son of Abraham that we are dealing with here. Um, yeah, he doesn't say forget it. Um, he says, he doesn't say quit your job as a tax collector. He implies that making restitution when you've done wrong to somebody, like it's important, it's necessary. Well, I have one more observation before we conclude. Something that stands out when you study church history is the astonishing variety of ways Jesus calls people to himself, and then the the wild transformation that takes place in it. Um, In the case of Zacchaeus, he calls him out of a tree, and there is this instant transformation. In the case of the Apostle Paul, he calls him on a road to Damascus as he's headed there in order to, to persecute Christians. He calls him. There's this instant transformation. He calls a very important North African Christian by the name of Augustine a few centuries later. Augustine is sitting on a bench and he hears children nearby playing. And the children are doing the sing-song game. They were singing out loud, Tole lege, tole lege, or if I messed up the Latin pronunciation, forgive me, but I think that's right. Tole lege, which means take up and read. And instantly he thought, that is the Lord speaking to me. And what did he do? He, he took, took up the Bible and he began to read. Uh, centuries later, he calls Martin Luther, a German Christian who's a monk in a monastery, who has a very tortured conscience. He's studying the book of Romans. He comes to Romans 1.17. He reads, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. It is a righteousness that is by faith, not by works, not by monastic good works. But faith, faith alone, faith from first to last, he's instantly transformed. Harriet Tubman, I don't know if you know her story, the African-American Christian woman, she was born in a Christian home, but she was beaten by her slave master, and she suffered a traumatic brain, um, a traumatic, traumatic injury to her brain. And shortly after that, she really started to sense that God was speaking to her. And after that, that suffering, that injury, she became a devout follower of Christ and, of course, ended up starting the Underground Railroad. Story after story of um, wonderfully various ways that Jesus looks at people and says, Come down, I'm coming over. <laughs> How did he ever say that to you? Um, my story is not 
very compelling. You know, we had talked about beginning to do interviews, uh, lost and found stories, and I, I had said we were going to try to do one this week, but I didn't have any volunteers, which I don't blame you not to volunteer. Other people were like, I'm not sure that you should do that in a worship service. And so I thought, I'll just tell my story, and it's not very, I don't think it's that great, but we were attending Grace Community Church here in Tempe, um, and every Sunday when I, we would walk in the door to the sanctuary, it was like a 5,000 person church, really big. But there was a short, I always remember him as short, Asian American gentleman who was just vivacious in his, his smile. I mean, he would greet you at the door and make you feel like he was really happy that you were there. I mean, and, and even just like a, a little, a young seventh grade kid like me, he would just, he would just shake my hand and say, I'm so glad you were here. Um, I noticed him. Well, one day, I'm in the bathroom at the church. He walks in, and um, he looks at me, and he says, have you, do you know Jesus? Have you, ever, have you ever really met Jesus? Have you ever, and back their lingo was, have you ever asked Jesus into your heart? And I was like, you realize we're in the bathroom right now. <laughs> but he didn't care. He didn't care. And I was like, well, I don't know that I have. He said, well, let me pray with you. And at that moment, I prayed. And I, I don't remember the exact words. It was like, Jesus, if you're real, I want to know you. Will you come come into my life? I, I want you into my life. And that was it. I came to Christ in the bathroom. <laughs> um, and I, I can't say that there was this instant transformation. I was only in the seventh grade. But there, there was a gradual transformation for sure. I, I really did want more of him um, with time. And what about you? Like, how did he call you? What did, words did he speak to you? Uh, you don't have to have a dramatic story, but I do think it's important that you at least think about your story because stories are powerful. And the better we are able to communicate our story to other people, I think the more they're able to relate to us. It, in, it gets them interested in a faith journey, for instance. And so I really, even if we don't do the interview thing in church, I really want you to consider, like, what is my story? How did he speak to me? Well, in conclusion, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. And I can only imagine how the people of Jericho would feel if they knew 2,000 years later we were talking and singing about the most hated person <laughs> in their city. Because verse 7, you notice the original reaction of the people. Like, everybody's upset. They, it's not just the teachers of the law who are critical of Jesus. Everybody is groaning and moaning that the most notorious sinner in the whole crowd would be singled out by Jesus. A crowd of perfectly respectable people. He would be the one. When the first Joshua came to Jericho, it was to conquer. But when the second Joshua came to Jericho, it was to seek and to save the lost. Up in Idaho, there's this vast, vast mountainous forested area called the Frank Church River of No Return Wilderness Area. It's huge. And from time to time, you'd hear stories of someone who decided to go on a solo backpacking trip into the Frank Church Wilderness. Um, and sometimes they wouldn't even tell any of his, their friends or family members that they were going. Well, then they would get lost. And there's no cell phone service in the Frank Church um, and they haven't told anyone, so nobody is expecting them to return after another week. 
Nobody knows that they're lost. There's nobody out there seeking after them. There's no search and rescue party. Like imagine, that, had to, that would have to be one of the most terrifying things in all of life to be completely lost and know nobody is out there looking for me. You can't say that about God, though. And I don't want it to be said about this Christian community, you know, that nobody's out looking for them because, like, that's the reason you plant a new church is is to go out with the same heart of Jesus, the very heart, which is to seek and to save, um, to bless the poor, to be extravagantly generous, to, to live with that kind of just rich abandon, to, to move towards the outcast, to move towards the poor, um, to seek and to save. Because there's nothing better than being found by him. Amen. I'll have Craig and Joe come back up now. Right, this is one of those kind of call and response things that we do as we come to the table each week because uh, it's a it's a long-standing tradition that you speak a blessing or a greeting uh, upon one another when you share a meal. And so I say, the Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians ten sixteen, asked the rhetorical question, is not the bread that we break a participation in the, the body of Christ? And is not the cup we drink a participation in the blood of Christ? And his answer in asking those rhetorical questions is yes. Yes, it is. Like somehow, mysteriously, we participate in Christ's body and blood We have fellowship together with Christ in his body and blood. And it's a glorious mystery that we thank you for, Father. We don't understand it, but by faith we believe it. And so we pray now, please enable us to meet with Christ at the table. Some of us feel so discouraged with ourselves. um, And we come today so spiritually empty. We're, We're dry. We're just bone dry. And we need your grace, the grace of Jesus, to come and water us and flood us. Um, Some of us are struggling with faith. We have really big doubts. Um, Some of us have been deeply hurt by other Christians or by the church. We have huge doubts. Some of us are struggling with with our own sins or the sins of others that have affected us. And, And we just come to you in our need, asking, calling out to you, help us, Lord. Be with us, Lord. And by participating in Christ's body and blood, may we find you satisfying our deepest desires. Flood us with joy. Flood us with thanksgiving, we pray. Um, And God's people said, amen.